The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 24, 1 through 18. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to twelve tribe, the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood and threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant and the Lord has made me made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I might give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you, and behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we we thank you for this morning this opportunity that you've given us to come together as your people, to celebrate baptism, to lift our voices in song to you, to to have our eyes lifted up from what has been before us from this week and to reorient our lives on who you are and what you've done for us. And so this morning, Father, we come to your word. We come to your word hungry. We come to your word needing nourishment, needing to be fed. And so we ask that your spirit would be at work Um, feeding us, opening our ears and softening our hearts to receive the good news. Would you uh, speak through me, use my mind, use my tongue to articulate the wonders of your mercy through Christ Jesus. And Father, I pray that this morning we would have the confidence that Moses had in Exodus 33 to say, show me your glory. So Father, I ask that you would show us your glory this morning. Show us who you are. Show us the wonders and and, and the incredible nature that you possess. We ask this in confidence through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, we have been, as a church, we've been going through the book of Exodus for the last 
I think it's at least six months at this point. And what we do here at Sacred City Church, we preach exegetically, meaning we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through entire books of the Bible. And so we've been trying our way through the book of Exodus. And up to this point, I've been saying that Exodus is a story divided into two parts. The first part is how God saves his people in the story of Exodus. And the second part of the book of Exodus is he's teaching them what it means to live free. And while that's true, uh, we come to the point in the story where there's more than that. It's, he's, he's not just teaching them how to live free. He's teaching them something far greater than that. And he's, what, what he's showing them uh, it, is that the way to live in freedom is to worship God. And so from here until the end of Exodus, that's really what the rest of the story is about, is how to worship God rightly. It becomes the central theme. And next week, we're going to really dive into that in chapters 25 through uh, chapters 30 as God instructs Moses how to set up the tent, the tabernacle in which God will dwell. But before God commands them to worship and teaches them what it means to worship, God gives them a reason to worship. And that's what is happening here in chapter 24. And, and, and I would argue that chapter 24 is perhaps the most under um, underappreciated or underrated chapter in the book of Exodus. I think chapter 24 in the book of Exodus is the most important thing to happen in the Exodus story, right? You you think about it. If you go back and you think through where God's brought his his people from, the plagues in Egypt, that certainly was spectacular, how God uh, acted in judgment and brought down frogs and locusts and, and turned the Nile to blood, Tremendous. We see, again, how in, in Exodus 13, 14, how God parts the Red Sea. Certainly, that was marvelous and wonderful. Great display, once again, of God's power. And then we see God with the people out in the wilderness where he's feeding them with bread that falls from heaven and he's providing water to them through a, a rock. But all of that sort of pales in comparison to what happens in today's passage. Today, what happens is more shocking than any of those things. In fact, there's, there's quite a few very important things or themes in this passage that will continue on throughout the, the narrative of Scripture. We'll see mediation, that there's one man who represents God's people, specifically Moses, who goes before God into his presence. We'll see this, this theme of covenant, very important, specifically a blood covenant where God binds himself to his people and his people are bound to God. Very important theme. But really what this passage is about, the main thing that this passage is about is God's unsearchable, unfathomable, multifaceted glory. See, God's glory is one of those concepts that many of us are familiar with. We, as Christians, we sing about God's glory, we pray about God's glory, we want to see God's glory, but when we're asked to put it into words, what does does God's glory mean? We we have a hard time doing so. In fact, this week as I was preparing for the sermon, I was was trying to find a book that was about God's glory, And, and really, I had a hard time finding it. I mean, people talk about God's glory, but to find a book that says, well, this is what God's glory, and they, they try to define it like that, it's, it's really impossible. Not too many authors try to take on such an undertaking. And it's because that there is an insufficiency, 
not only in our communication of God's glory, that words themselves are limited in explaining and expressing God's glory and what it means, but our comprehension is limited as well. That even if we were to be able to describe it and articulate it precisely, we could not comprehend such glory. However, even though that's the case, that, that to, it's, it's near impossible for us to articulate, to, to encapsulate God's glory entirely, accurately, fully, we were all created with a hunger for this glory. We were all created to enjoy and to savor and to be in the glory of God. So the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that the chief end of man, the, the main purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, to glorify God, I think when we talk about glorifying God, one of the things that we often think about, we, we kind of make that synonymous with worship, that we're to worship God and enjoy him forever. And, and that, is, that is true, but I think to really understand what it means to glorify God, we have to understand to glorify God is to sort of enter into his glory and to become participants of it with him. It's not so much about worshiping and acknowledging that God is glorious and from a distance I can say, oh, I worship you, God, but to actually be drawn into and to participate, to be encapsulated, to to be devoured by such glory. I think this does a really good job of acknowledging the fact when we say that we were created, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It does a really good job of of, um, acknowledging the fact that we are not just made to observe and say, oh, certainly God is glorious, but for us to enter into that glory as well. Think of it like this. If a kid, you know, we're the season where farmer's markets, carnivals, all of that stuff is going on. Kid goes to one, a farmer's market and there's a bouncy house, a sweet bouncy house, right? Think, think back to your six, seven-year-old self. Bouncy house, and you see this thing, it's it's like primary colors, the red, the blue, the yellow. It's awesome. There's a slide and stairs and a climbing wall and place to jump and you're throwing balls. This thing, a kid looks at it and says, wow, that is awesome. Right, that bouncy house looks so cool. But here's the thing. A child is not satisfied with just looking at the awesomeness of a bouncy house, right? No kid walks up to him, touches it. Oh, man, that's so great. They want to get in it. They want to play in it for themselves. They want to experience firsthand the, the slide and, and the obstacle course and jump around. See, this is what it was meant for us. God's glory was meant like for us, not to just look at it and say, wow, that's awesome, but for us to get in it for ourselves. And I think that many of us go through our week forgetting how awesome, how glorious, how amazing God is, how amazing his glory is. We either get distracted by lesser things, right? We'd rather go play on the teeter-totter or go play hopscotch than enter into the awesomeness of the bouncy house. Or we just, we, we ignore it. Pretend like it's not even there. But when you understand that you were created for, that you were, you were made to experience God's glory in such a profound way that it changes who you are in the core of you and changes the way that you live, that is what it means to glorify God. And so today, as we look at chapter 24, there's a couple things that we're gonna learn about God's glory. First of all, we're, we're gonna, hopefully, I'm, my prayer is that you would get a glimpse of God's glory that that would mean something. Now, it's not not just a throwaway word or or an adjective that you use. It would actually possess something for you. But even more so, 
what we're going to explore is how to enter into that glory. So here we go. If you want to open up your Bibles, Exodus 24, that's, if, uh, if you're not very familiar with the Bible, um, Exodus is the second book of the Bible, right at the front. You'll find it right there in chapter 24, um, or if you can follow along on the screen. So let's, let's take a look here at verse 1. Then he, this is God, then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship him from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. Now this, here is the turning point in this story where we go from God freeing his people, he gives them the law, but now he's, he's really showing them their full purpose to worship God. So God is calling his people in to worship him, but he's calling them to do so on his own terms. He says, first the people at the base of the mountain, and the elders, the leaders, can come up a little bit further, but it's Moses alone who can come up. And so in Moses, Israel is represented. The Moses is the mediator between the people and God. And so Moses goes up, and he hears God speak, and then Moses goes back down and conveys what God said to the people, and he relays to them again and restates the Ten Commandments and the subsequent laws, and that's in verses three through four. Moses came, and he told the people all the words of the Lord and the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken to us, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. See, the people say that God lays out the, the, the covenant, and the people say, hey, we're in, we're in. They affirm that they will uphold their end of the covenant. Now, what is this covenant that God's making? This covenant that God's making is, I will make you my people, and I will bless you, but what I require from you is obedience to myself, to obedience to my ways. And so that's the, the trade-off there. That's the agreement, that God will bless his people. He will make them a special people, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, All they need to do is act as if that's true, to live according to God's ways. And so Moses, he takes this agreement, he takes the laws that God has given his people and he starts to write them down here in verse four. And this is very significant because this is the the first time that we're told that someone has written down God's words, right? When God speaks to you, you write that stuff down. It's not like a grocery list that you just maybe, you know, let it go off the top of your head or or a to-do list. This is God speaking to his people. Moses begins the canon of scripture and writes it down. And so this marks that God and his people have reached an agreement. But the thing is here, there are no negotiations. God doesn't come forward and say, hey, this is what I propose to you. And, And then the people say, well, we like parts A and B, but we don't like part C, There's no negotiation going on here. God lays out the covenant and the people accept it. They engage with it. Now this is because, this is not because they're being forced to, but this is because the people of God have experienced God's mercy in such a profound way that their hearts are shaped with gratitude and thanksgiving. That anything that God lays out for them, they are eager to step into it. See, when God has brought you from the cruel Egyptian slaver, when God has led you through the Red Sea, when God has provided for you day after day with manna coming down from heaven, you acknowledge God's provisions for you, and you are willing to step into that and to agree on God's terms. And so Moses wastes no time. He prepares an altar to, to sort of seal the deal, if you will. And he's told how to do this back in Exodus 20. God, God's hinting at there's an, you'll need to build an altar at some point. And so now the time has come. Moses builds an altar and take a look at verse four. 
And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning, and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it to the people, uh, read it in the hearing of the people, and, and they said, All the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. See, Moses rereads the law and he says, Are you guys sure you want to do this? And with a resounding yes, they say, We will obey. We're all in. Now, <clears throat> you might be skeptical of the response, right? Who thinks, who on earth thinks that they could perfectly keep the laws that God has laid out for them, right? Do these people actually mean what they say or is this just sort of lip service? And I think, it's my opinion, that these people meant exactly what they said. That they are, in fact, all in. That they are committed completely to God and his ways. And it's not because that they are great at keeping the law. Okay, it's not because they themselves have something great and tremendous within them that allows them to obey God's law perfectly. No, the reason why they are all in is because God's glory is before them. They have seen the awesomeness of God. They have seen the magnificence and the glory and splendor of God. Back in Exodus 19, there's a very big description of what God's glory appears to look like. They're, they're coming toward the mountain and, and, and the earth is shaking. Thunder and lightning fill the air. Trumpet blasts. Just I mean, this is sensory overload, right, for the people. Just God is on the mountain. He's shaking the earth, visually stimulating. And then fire descends and a smoke, a cloud of smoke fills the earth. People look at this and say, whoa, this is incredible. See, the people, I think they're all in, and they mean it because they have seen the glory of God. Now, what is glory? See, we sort of get a visual representation, but what does it, what's the, the essence of it? What does it actually mean? Well, the Hebrew word is kavod, which translated means richness or infinite value. It means heaviness or importance. It means splendor or, or awesomeness. John Piper says it like this, God's glory is his infinite value gone public. See, God is showing his worth to his people. And he's putting it on display for them to see. That God is, is heavier, he's more important, he's more weighty than anything else that these people have ever come across. Even in the land of, of Pharaoh, where there are all kinds of gods who are capable of, of certain things. But here God shows how he's way more important, that he's way more powerful, that he's way more uh, uh, mindful of his people. See, when you see the glory of God, when you see God's infinite value, when you see his, his beauty and his splendor, that you become captivated by him where everything else pales in comparison. See, people who see the glory love God more than anything else. People who see the glory desire more of God you don't have to beg them to come to church. You don't have to drag them to missional community. People who have seen the glory are eager to re-enter into it. These are people who read their Bibles, that pray often. People who want nothing more than to please God with their lives. That is the mark of someone who's seen the glory. 
You see, because when you see the glory of God, when you behold his awesomeness, his his beauty, there's a chain reaction of life reorientation that happens. See, glory, true glory, reorients our hearts to what is important, what is most important. To borrow an idea from Puritan Thomas Chalmers, who who, who said um, that there is an expulsive power of a new affection, meaning that that when we love something more, other things seem to pass away. Now, what I'm going to borrow here is that there's an expulsive power of God's glory, that when you see God's glory, everything else fades away. When you see what's supremely valuable, that overrides the desires that prevent us from entering into that, to participating in that. It reorients our lives to live according to God's ways rather than our own or whatever else we're beholding as glorious in our life. What I want you to see here, friends, is that obedience to God begins with beholding his glory. That if you, if you are trying to obey God on your own might and your own power by white-knuckling it, getting down and, and doing it on your own power, you will fizzle out. You will, run away. You will, you will not be capable of, of obeying him in the way that he's called you to. But if you behold the glory of God, if you see him as infinitely more valuable, if you see him as your greatest treasure, then obedience will come as a natural progression. And so it's because of this, because Israel has seen God's glory, I believe they mean what they say, that they are all in, that they have the purest intentions of obeying God. Now let me ask you, friends, have you seen God's glory in such a way? Is God supremely valuable to you so that you can respond in saying, all the Lord has commanded, I will do. Do you make intentional time to behold the glory? Are you in your word? Are you praying? Are you in community, living on mission? Have your desires been overridden by God's glory? See, my prayer for us this morning, more than anything else, more than any teaching that I can offer you or explanation of the scripture, my prayer for us this morning that we would gain a new sustaining vision of God's glory that compels us, just as it compelled Israel to say, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's what the church needs more than anything, more than great leadership, more than better music, more than catchy songs and, and, and cool graphics. That what the church needs is to behold the glory of God. And so after these words come out of the people's mouth of Israel, all the Lord has spoken, we will do, we will obey him. Something very important happens in verse five through eight. This is is perhaps the most important part of the book of Exodus. And I'm gonna warn you, it's a little strange according to our view, right? Animals are gonna get slaughtered. There's gonna be blood sloshed around. It's gonna be kind of weird. But let me tell you this, before we even get into that, that every culture has traditions or rituals that seem bizarre to outsiders, Every culture does. Think of, think of weddings, for example. Typically, lots of planning goes into weddings, and somehow every bride matches. She wears white. I don't know what the deal with that is. Always wearing white. People look really good. They stand up in, in front of the stage, in front of a bunch of strangers. Maybe they sing. There's, there's a minister. They exchange words. 
Um, they, they hand each other uh, metal and rock, expensive metal and expensive rock, and they put it on a specific hand, on a specific finger. And then, then they smooch. And then, and then, the, then they go forward into the night. Um, there's a reception. There's food, party. And then typically some guy or some lady gets up, and you, you kind of get a little uncomfortable because it's like, what are these guys going to say uh, as they give their toasts? And they usually say something kind of witty, kind of funny, and then it wraps up with a sincere, heartfelt something or other. And then, and then the bride and the groom, they progress to uh, feeding each other cake. Okay, what is that? Uh, taking fluffy, flowery sugar bread and shoving it into each other's faces. I don't know, right? That's weird, guys. Um, and, then, and then the reception continues on. The garter, I don't even want to talk about that. That's weird. Throwing the flowers, that's strange. And then it's like, then the dollar dance. This is, to me, maybe the most bizarre thing that we do. The dollar dance, where for exchange of money, you get 30 seconds of time dancing with the bride or the groom. What is that? So even, even within our own culture, there are these bizarre things that happen that we're, we're used to them. But this here, what's happening in chapter 24, is something that, that would have been sort of familiar. The concept of this covenant being made would have been familiar to them. But really what's happening is far more profound than anything that's happened before. Take a look at verse 8. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. See, after Moses has taken half the blood from the animals that they've slaughtered, there's been peace offerings, there's been sacrifices that have been made, and, and there's, a, there's a lot of animals that have died because of this. He takes half the blood, he puts it in a basin and, and dumps it over the altar, and the, with the other half of the blood, he takes it and he sprinkles the blood over the people. Now, what on earth just happened here? Why are these people covered in blood? What's the deal with the blood? And scholars actually have quite a bit to say about this, but there's a couple of things that I want to highlight for you here. First of all, the blood, significa, uh, the, the blood signified the seriousness of the situation. Now, like I've got a three-year-old, like most adventurous three-year-olds, um, he tends to get hurt daily. Um, yesterday, he fell off the kitchen chair twice by himself, and he's always got bumps and bruises and owies, all this stuff. And, and as a dad, one of the ways that I gauge the seriousness of the situation, I, I ask, is there any blood? Are you bleeding? Nope, most of the time, no. But on the small chance that there is, usually a Paw Patrol Band-Aid takes care of that. It's easy. But, but there has been one specific instance where there was a lot of blood resulted in a trip to the ER. And we saw, we looked at it, oh man, there's lots of blood. This is a situa- situation is serious. Well, friends, there's a lot of blood here. Literally people covered in blood. Now, what this say, says about this passage is that it's very serious matter. This is not a off-the-cuff, um, by-the-seat-of-your-pants agreement. This is something that has been thought out very well, something that, that is of the utmost importance. It's a big, big commitment, and a covenant that is sealed with blood is of the most binding covenants. This was a life-or-death matter. That it's either keep the covenant and you live, or you break the covenant and you die. See, it's a serious matter. The presence of blood meant it was serious, but 
but what was also done with the blood reveals something else. It shows us God's grace. Philip Ryken says this. God was not simply showing his people what would have been if they failed. He was also showing that there was a way for them to remain in his favor even after they sinned. See, when Moses sprinkled the blood on the altar of God, it shows that God, that has, God had forgiven their sins. Anytime there's a bloody altar, this is what it means, that sins are forgiven. The atonement has been made for. God had accepted the, the sacrifice, the, the peace offering that the people had given to God as payment of sin. But it also means the blood was propitiation. That means that God had turned aside his wrath from his people and directed it toward the animal that had been sacrificed. And so then what happens with the blood next? God, Moses takes the blood, he splatters it on the people. This is the application of blood to the people. It shows that God had accepted their sacrifice and that they were now included in that covenant through the forgiveness of their sins, that the blood and its benefits were applied to God's people directly. Alec Motier, who's a theologian and pastor, scholar, has a quote about this. He says, in this instant right here, this, it, actually I have a slide for this if you want to show it up and read along with me. It means that just as the blood of the covenant on the one hand established the relationship of peace with God by propitiation, so on the other hand, the blood of the covenant maintains the relationship of peace with God for a people who are committed to walk in obedience. God knows that the people are professing beyond their strength. They're saying all that we can do, all the Lord says we will do, and God knows, well, that's not going to be necessarily true. And here's what God says, very well, says God. I will make provision for them. The same blood which has made peace with God will keep peace with God. And they will walk in the way of obedience. The blood is available for people committed to obey as they stumble and fall, so the covenant blood will be available for them. Simply put, it's by the blood that they were bound to keep the law, and it's by the blood that they're forgiven when they failed the law. And what happens when this covenant is made is something profound. For the first time ever, God's people have access to God in a way that they've never had before. Take a look at verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief of men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. See, first, this is shocking. This should be very shocking to us because, first of all, they saw God. This this is surprising because to do so, to see God and to live is not supposed to happen. We see this in Exodus 33. To see God in his glory means that you would perish. But verse 11 makes note of this rare opportunity where God didn't lay his hands on the elders who get to see him. And there's no doubt about it that they did indeed see God. And verse 11 tells us that they beheld him, which is to gaze upon him. So first of all, the covenant gave them them access to see God like they had never seen him before. And what they saw probably didn't make a lot of sense to them because because if it did, they probably would have tried to describe it. But here, the best they can muster is we saw the ground he was standing on. It was like sapphire stone, clear as heaven. 
They couldn't actually describe what it was like to see God's glory, but they certainly saw it. And with that and seeing it, the covenant gave them intimate access to God as they beheld him, they looked upon him, and they ate and drank. Now this, to behold someone and to eat and drink, to do those things together, this is an act of intimacy. This is a component of meaningful relationships, right? Even, even friendships. Men, when you take your wife on, on a date, what are you doing? You're beholding her glory. You're eating and participating with her. You're sharing something meaningful in that moment. And what God does here is the same. That his people are allowed to draw near and behold him and to gaze upon him and, and share a meal with him. This is a level of intimacy that God offers his people, to sit down, to belly up to the table with God and to joy his presence. See, the covenant gives people access to God that they have never before had. It's with, without this covenant, without the blood that was poured on the altar, without the blood that was sprinkled upon him, there's no way that God's people would ever be able to do this and live. There's no way they would be able to behold the glory, no way that they'd be able to sit and eat and participate with God in such a meal. But because the blood was shed, they are able to approach and draw near. And God calls Moses further into this intimacy, further into the glory, and he says, come up even further to the mountain. Take a look, let's see, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So this time, God is going to give Moses the tablets of stone. So God is actually going to write down the law that he's given Moses. And God is going to give that to his people directly. And and really what this shows, coming out of such an, an intimate setting to sit down at the table with God, to behold him, to receive God's laws given directly from him. It's a gift that God is instructing his people in the way that they should live just as a loving father would teach his son how to grow up and to become a man. This is, this is a gesture of love toward his people. And even in that gesture, Moses, back in, in 13 and 14, Moses sends um, the leaders of Israel back down to take care of and to minister to and to, to instruct the people on how they ought to live as disputes arise. And while Moses, in the meantime, heads back up the mountain to Mount Sinai for the fourth or fifth time, let's uh, uh, up to this far in the story. Look at verse 15. Then Moses went up the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, this hike up Mount Sinai would have been an incredible feat. I've got a photo of, of that. You can see that very well. This is what Mount Sinai is believed, modern day Mount Sinai is believed to look at, look like. That it's not just a little mound uh, of dirt somewhere in the middle of the nowhere. This is a mountain that Moses would climb. Six days, it says, that it took him to get up this mountain. And he's done this time and time again. 
See, this vertical distance, this, this image of the mountain being up high and the difficulty of the terrain gives us an image of how distanced we are from God's glory before entering the covenant. The people are at the base of the mountain, not even allowed to come up, and God is here in his glory atop of the mountain. And now there's this, this gap that's being bridged as Moses ascends and God's glory comes back down on the mountain again. See, before the covenant, before the blood was shed, before the blood was applied on the altar and sprinkled on the people, God was out of reach. He was out of grasp. His glory was too far beyond the people. But it's by the blood of the covenant that that this gap is bridged, that Moses ascends into the glory. And really, when we step back and look at the book of Exodus in whole, this is really what the whole book is about, bringing people into God's glory. It's bringing people into the bouncy house of God's awesomeness. It's not just about God delivering his people from Egypt and making them free. See, freedom by itself, it's good, but freedom itself is not ultimate. God's glory is the ultimate. Freedom doesn't cause earthquakes. Freedom doesn't cause fire to fall from heaven. Freedom doesn't cause trumpets to blast from heaven but God's glory does. And what God wants his people to experience more than anything, he wants them to experience what is ultimate. He wants them to experience his glory and to be brought into it. And so Moses here gets a taste of this. For 40 days and 40 nights, Moses comes up the hill where God's glory is, and he gets to be in it. Verse 16 restates that the glory was there upon the mountain. Verse 17 says the devouring fire that represented God's presence, was there as well, and Moses steps into it. Now, I didn't, I didn't see this until yesterday as I, was, as I was preparing. The fact that Moses can step into this cloud, step into this, what appears to be devouring fire, and survive, that means one thing. The blood worked. It's because of this blood that Moses can come up the mountain and not be consumed, not be destroyed by God's presence. It means that the covenant stands, that Moses and the sins of the people were forgiven, that they were purified so that they could enter into God's glory. Because here's the thing about God's glory. God's glory, John Piper says this another way too, God's glory is his holiness made public. That God in in his purity and who he is, his essence of his awesomeness, Anything that is unholy will be destroyed in the presence of holiness. And here Moses comes in. And don't be, don't be shocked, but Moses is a sinful man. Moses is a murderer. Moses has been grumbling. He's been complaining about the people. He's a sinner. And this unholy man enters into the holiness, the glory of God. See, that's the power of the blood. That's the power of the blood of the covenant, that it gives us access to God, but even more so, it brings us into glory. Like I said before, God's intentions were not just to show his people his glory, but to bring them into it, to let them participate in it for themselves, that they were a people built for glory, that we are a people who are built for glory. And now there is a new way into that glory. See, everything that happens in Exodus 24, the mediator, the covenant, the blood, the meal, the glory, it all points 
to Jesus. Specifically in the new covenant where Jesus is the mediator and the sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 15 tells us that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. That he is the better Moses who stands between God and his people. It tells us that Jesus is the sacrifice, the true sacrifice. Philip Ryken says this. This showed the full significance of the old sacrifices when Jesus shed his blood on the cross for our sins. When the New Testament talks about Christ, it often describes his saving work in terms of blood. God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. That's Romans 3.25. That we have been justified by his blood, Romans 5.9. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, Ephesians 1.7. You have been brought near through the blood of Christ. That's Ephesians 2.13. For God was making peace through his blood shed on the cross, Colossians 1.19 and 20. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, Revelation 1.4. Uh, one five. It's by the blood of Jesus that we are justified, redeemed, reconciled, forgiven, and released from sin. It's by the blood that we are saved. It's by the blood of the covenant. Friends, this new covenant that God offers to us is far greater than the covenant that came before in the people. Um, in the wilderness. See, we, we where the people in the wilderness saw God's glory and smoke and lightning and flashes of thunder, we get to see the glory of God revealed in Christ. That if you want to see the glory of God, where you need to look is not to a mountain but to Calvary where Christ came as a man put on flesh, died for the sins of man. See, when we look to Christ, we see the riches, the fullness of God's grace. And what John Piper says is that God's grace is the apex of his glory. The high point of God's glory is his grace towards sinners. See, this means that the glorious God of the universe, the creator, the sustainer of all things, the one who possesses true and absolute beauty and goodness, he put on flesh so that he would open up his own veins. He would open up his own veins so that we could be justified, sanctified, and glorified by his blood. See, this is the power of Christ's blood, the blood of the new covenant. And it's sufficient for all three things, to justify us, to forgive us of our sins, and to credit us with Christ's righteousness. It's sufficient to sanctify us, to change us to be more like Christ, to make us more glorious in him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, all who are beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It's in our sanctification, in the process of becoming more like Christ, more glorious in him, becoming consumed by the glory. That is as we behold him, as we treasure him, as we, as we see the glory of Christ in his sacrifice, his life, death, resurrection, that we're changed. 
It's a powerful, transformational, life-changing grace that affects us in this life right now and beyond so that he will glorify us. Right now, we get, we get snippets of glory. We get tastes of it. It's like when you stand before the Grand Canyon and you see the, the marvel, you marvel at it. We get to see snippets of God's glory here, but there will be a day where we will be with Christ in glory, in the fullness of it, that we will be glorified, that we will be complete in glory, that all of our affirmities, all of our sin will be removed from us, and we will joy, enjoy in fullness being in God's glory, that we will get to play in the bouncy house of God's awesomeness forever that we will be able to belly up at the table where the marriage supper of the lamb happens, where we enjoy complete access and complete intimacy with God. Friends, you were built for glory. And the only way to find yourself in that glory, the only way to enter into that is through the blood of Christ. That's the only way. So if you want to belly up to the table and and, and be enraptured by the glory, by the awesomeness, by the splendor, you must be covered in the blood of Christ. And it's not a matter of ceremony or ritual. It's a matter of faith. To trust Christ, to see that you are unfit as you are in yourself to enter into the glory. But when Christ's blood is applied to you, you gain access to the maker of the heavens and the earth. See, it's without the blood covering you, you'll be consumed. You'll be devoured by that flame. But with the blood covers you, you have access to God. It means the blood of Christ works. Hebrews 9, 14 says that the blood of Christ is far more sufficient than the blood of of oxen, of any sort of animal sacrifice. The blood of Christ is sufficient to bring all of God's people into his glory. And just as the old covenant had a meal, so too does this new covenant that God offers us, the Lord's Supper. On that night, Jesus was betrayed. He took the bread, representing the sacrifice that was broken. And he said, this is my body that is broken for you. And he took the cup, He says, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus inaugurates a new covenant for his people that by faith in him, not through obedience to him, though though faith and obedience, when we we place our faith in Jesus, the, the natural production happens where we are obedient. As we behold the glory of God, we do get in step with him in his ways. But it's by faith in Jesus that we are brought into this covenant. Now, right now, this is a meal where we as God's people get to belly up to the table until the day we get to belly up to the table with God in paradise. So to get in on this covenant, you must first believe and put your trust in Jesus. See that his blood is sufficient to cleanse you of your sins and to bring you into relationship with God and to allow you to enter into the glory. So this morning as we take the the body and the blood and we consume it and we take it into ourselves. Know that God is bringing you into glory as well. This is a meal that's for Christians, people who, who are baptized and believe in Christ. 
So as you come down the aisle this morning, what you're doing is publicly professing your faith, saying that the blood of Christ is sufficient to bring me into the glory. Now, if you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to to not take the Lord's Supper, but to take Christ. Turn to him. Place your trust on him. See that his blood was shed for you to forgive you of your sins and to give you a new life in him. This is the power of the blood, and it works. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made a way for us in Christ to come face to face with you in glory, not just to see it, not just to to have words to describe it, but to experience it for ourselves. And I pray, Father, that you would stir our hearts in a way that you would give us eyes to see, the eyes of our heart would be open to see the glory of Christ, to see your glory, the, the grace of God as the apex of glory, to be so moved by, by Christ and what he has done for us, to bring us into relationship with you, to, to provide a means of grace for us that we would be cleansed of our sin and be made right with you, to have peace with you, to, to belly up to the table with you, to enjoy your presence, to be consumed by it. And that in in being consumed by your glory, Father, you would send us out as your disciples to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us into his marvelous light. I pray, Father, you'd send us out of here as missionaries, people who are enraptured with the glory of Christ in a way that, that, that laces our speech and our acts of goodness. The people in our city who are far from you we get closer and closer to you as we proclaim who you are and what you've done. Father, we want to see your glory. We thank you that it's by Christ's blood that when we do see it, we're not consumed, but we're brought into it. We thank you, Father, for Christ's blood. It's his name we pray, amen.